Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. God, the treasures that are within it are vast. And so God, even now this morning as we, as we open our Bibles and hold them on our laps or hold them in our hands, God, we, uh, we take a moment just to recognize the gravitas of the word that we hold. God, the power that it holds within it when the spirit activates these truths in our heart. God, this morning we want to place ourselves under your authority and ask that you would speak this morning. So God, would you use me to just simply hold forth the truths of the word uh, in such a way that are accessible and applicable this morning and that would bring transformation in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Nothing brings perspective in in life more than beholding raw, untamable power. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was backpacking last summer with some friends and we were in this kind of canyon. It was up in the... uh, kind of the Marble Mountains region, and if you've ever been backpacking in there, these massive, sheer sort of granite cliffs, and we hike into this little bowl of a lake out in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell reception. This is in the, uh, in the back country, um, and we're all sleeping in hammocks. We kind of do hammocks, and so I have this tiny nylon tarp that weighs about 12 ounces, um, and you put it over your hammock, and you just hope if weather comes in that the, the tarp is going to do its job, right? Well, everything was great. It was a beautiful day, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we see these massive thunder clouds roll over the top of us. And before you know it, like these huge cracking, breaking sound of thunder is reverberating off of the granite walls and you feel it in your chest. You know, the lightning that strikes and it literally lights up the whole place when you see it happen. And then it begins to hail, right? And we're all like sitting underneath our little nylon tarps, like hoping that that they're going to hold up to the hail and the thunder and hoping that this thing's going to blow off. Just an example of, of how small Creation, how small nature and the power of nature, you know, can make us feel. Power is something that as, as finite humans, uh, when we behold it, it sort of puts us in our place. Have you ever had that feeling where you just, you see something so powerful, so um, intense that it just literally sort of puts you in your place? I can just imagine um, a denuclearized world uh, that, that was the first people to see a nuclear bomb dropped during World War II. Can you imagine? You've never heard of anything or seen anything like this before, and then all of a sudden you see on the television screen uh, a, a, a mushroom cloud of something to, to, to a magnitude of power that you didn't even know was possible. Can you imagine, the, for those of you that maybe saw or were privy to Mount St. Helens blowing up? I mean, the, whenever we behold power... It sort of puts us in our rightful place. But the same power that can bring terror and fear can also bring comfort, depending on which side of that power you're on, right? So the sun, for instance, you get too close to the sun, you're, you're toast. I mean, the sun is a giant floating ball of gas, right? And, and, and it's so intense that it literally heats the world. But that same sun for us actually brings life and produces life, and it actually creates plant life in our, in our world. And it makes it to where we can actually actually live. Uh, Nuclear energy, or nuclear energy, depending on who you are, right? Nuclear energy uh, can create massive destruction, but it can also create massive amounts of sustainable power. It can create massive amounts of power that bring life. So the same power that's destructive, the same power that, that can take life is also the same power that can give life. And it all depends on what it's sourced in, who has control of it, and which side of it you're on. You don't want to be on the wrong side. Of power. In our text today, we're going to behold raw power. 
raw, uncontrollable, unbridled power. We're going to look at two different stories, each of which... Uh, illustrate for us, Mark, um, the author of this gospel that we're reading, illustrate for us raw power. The first is the power of a massive storm. And then we're going to see the, the power of, of the demonic realm. We're going to see the power of, of someone who is literally possessed by thousands of demons. And then we're going to see superior power come in and overshadow that power. We're going to see the superior power of Christ swallow up the inferior power of creation and the inferior power of the demonic. It's pretty exciting stuff. Are you excited to look at it? Okay, me too. This is part of a, <clears throat> a section that the author, Mark, is uh, portraying for us. It's, part of a, it's sort of umbrellaed by four miracles, each of which miracle uh, really reveals the power of Christ to a degree that we haven't seen at this point. Uh, there's the two I just mentioned that we're going to look at, and there's two more that are coming, and that is uh, where Jesus heals a woman just because she touches his garment. Which, what kind of power do you have to have flowing through you for someone just to touch your shirt and you're healed? And then right, right at the same time, immediately after, Jesus literally raises a young woman from the dead, which he has not yet done in Mark. So we're just seeing this display. And really what Mark is doing for us in his gospel is he's uh, revealing this very simple reality, and that is, who is Jesus? He's revealing who is Jesus, and he's been doing that for us chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and he's been ramping up. Jesus' miracles have been ramping up in magnitude. They're becoming more and more and more undeniable uh, in terms of who he is and what he came to do. Now, in our text this morning, like I said, we're going to look at two stories. We're going to see Jesus' power over two different kinds of evil. Did you know that there are different kinds of evil? There is moral evil, which is the evil we as humans produce. Then there is something called natural evil. Natural evil is the fact that creation wants to kill you. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know that? Because of the fall, because of the curse, uh, Adam and Eve were literally cast out into the wilds. We live in a world that is hostile. Just turn on the news. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, um, sickness, pandemics, illness. That is all part of something called natural evil. It's the, part, it's the fact that creation is literally cursed, and creation, if it has its way, will kill you. It's called natural evil. Jesus is going to display his power over natural evil. There's a third kind of evil. It's called supernatural evil. This is the evil of the demonic realm. This is the evil of fallen angels. This is the evil that uh, is ultimately the Satan in all of his work. So these three strands of evil all exist, and Jesus ultimately defeats all three. In our text, he's going to defeat two, natural evil and supernatural evil. Okay, let's dive in. First, Jesus' power over natural evil, chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, <clears throat> when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now let me remind, let me remind you where we're at in the, um, in the narrative here, if you haven't been with us. Jesus just finished up a long day of preaching. 
and teaching from the boat. Remember last week, Jesus got into the boat so he could get away from the crowds a little bit, pushed off about 15 to 20 feet from shore and began to preach. And he began to preach in parables. He taught the parable of the four soils. He taught the parable of the mustard seed. He taught the parable of the mystery of the kingdom and how it grows. Jesus has been preaching all day. I preach one time a week, sometimes two if there's a Bible study. And I don't, you guys don't even know, my wife does. I'm hashed Sunday afternoon. I got nothing left. Preaching is exhausting. You're literally spilling your guts in front of, like you're emotionally just pouring yourself out. Jesus has been preaching all day, every day, interacting with the hardest um, the hardest social issues you can imagine people with, uh, with all kinds of illnesses are coming in. The crowds are pressing. His family, he's, he's ministering so intensely that his family thinks he's nuts. And so Jesus is preaching all day. He's in the boat and the end of the day comes. The sun is beginning to set and Jesus turns to his disciples and said, don't even go into shore. I don't even want to go home and get a change of clothes. Just throw the rope in the boat, pull the anchor and let's go to the other side of the lake. He's exhausted. He needs to retreat. He needs to, to get away. So this is essentially what, what happens. The disciples don't have a clue what's about to happen. They just think they're going to go for a nice, pleasant cruise across the Sea of Galilee. It's about 10 miles. It's probably a very calm evening. These guys are used to sailing. They're fishermen. They're just thinking they're going to go across the lake and then get some rest on the other side of the lake where it's less populated. Well, think again. When you follow Jesus... He has intense things in store for you. <laughs> and you never know they're coming. So they begin to sail, verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So what's happening here is as they're sailing in an instant, just like in my story, uh, it was a clear evening, but then all of a sudden the clouds begin to form, the thunderheads begin to roll in, massive amounts of wind begin to sweep through the Sea of Galilee. Galilee sits in a bowl, and scientifically it is, is very likely and very often that storms happen on the Sea of Galilee. And so as they're going, all of a sudden, this massive windstorm starts pouring water over the sides of their boat. Their boat wasn't very large, probably about 10 to 15 feet. The, the, the boats that they dug up in Galilee from the first century, they weren't large. And, and these, these experienced fishermen are freaking out. Water's pouring over the sides. <clears throat> it's crazy. It's mayhem. It's mayhem. What are they beholding right now? Power. The power of creation. The power of nature, the power of natural evil, the fact that they are in a storm that wants to swallow them. And they're terrified. Wouldn't she be terrified? Wouldn't she be terrified? But here's the, the interesting part about the story. In verse 38, Jesus is in the stern sleeping on the cushion while his guys are up there doing whatever they're doing, hoisting the jib, I don't know, um, trying to figure out how to not capsize, trying to keep the boat from flipping over, and they're bailing, and water is literally splashing into the boat, and it's rocking and swaying and swelling, and they're shouting and screaming, and Jesus is sawing logs. How weird is that? What, I mean, what are we supposed to think about this weirdly timed Christological nap time? It's the only time in the Bible that Jesus ever, that we have any record of Jesus sleeping. Now, he slept, of course, but it's the only time in the Bible that we actually see him sleeping. Why is he sleeping? And how is he not waking up? Wouldn't you think he'd wake up? Just consider a couple things here. I think we're meant to see here, for one, the humanity of Jesus here. 
Is Jesus God? Yes. Is Jesus man? Yes. Jesus is exhausted. Have you ever been so tired that you slept through some intense thing and, and you didn't even know that it happened? I remember one time I came back from, from high school camp. I was so beat. I slept for, for, for so long. And literally my mom said the next morning, she's like, did you not wake up last night when the sirens, there was, there was a big like house fire just on the street. There were sirens everywhere. There's people yelling. I'm like, I don't remember any of that. When you're really tired, you sleep through anything. Jesus isn't just trying to make a point here. He's tired. He's a man. He's human. His body is fatigued. He's been preaching and ministering countless hours after hours after hours, and he's tired. And we need to remember that the same Jesus who is the God is also the God-man. We need to remember that because it makes him relatable to us. So when you're tired, when you're exhausted, I want you to remember, I have a Lord that knows what it feels like to be tired because he lived in a human body that was exhausted. So we're meant to see the humanity of Jesus here. We're also meant to see the serenity of Jesus. What, a, what an amazing contrast here between the disciples who are freaking out and just Jesus who is completely calm, completely at rest. He's completely calm, he's completely at rest because he has nothing in this moment to fear. He's not worried about sinking. He knows what his fate is gonna be and he knows it's gonna be the cross. He knows this isn't the moment that he goes down. He told these guys, didn't he? He said, we're going to go across. We're going to go across. Jesus has nothing to fear. Can you imagine getting to sleep like Jesus slept? I mean, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Don't get me wrong. He carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. But one thing that didn't keep up Jesus at night was a guilty conscience. He was without sin. One thing that didn't keep Jesus up at night was wondering if he'd made a mistake or if he, if he had done something wrong or, or if he had something to repent of. He slept. He slept deeply. I love this, uh, this quote here, if I can find it. The calming storm, or pardon me, let me back up. Where is it? Here it is. We behold in him here exactly the reverse of Jonah, the fugitive prophet asleep in the midst of a similar danger out of a dead conscience, the savior out of a pure conscience, Jonah by his presence making the danger, Jesus yielding the pledge and the assurance of deliverance from the danger. I love that Jesus is just sleeping. He's just sleeping. And can I just say just a side application here? If you want to sleep like Jesus, then have the faith of Jesus. Trust the Father. If you want to sleep like Jesus, then realize that the perfect life of Jesus is yours in Christ. You don't need to be up all night worrying, thinking about whether there's condemnation for you because the perfect life of Christ has been imputed to you. You can sleep like Jesus if you believe the gospel. Just a side note. And we see verse 38, the faithless alarm clock. They woke, <clears throat> they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care that, 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 that we're perishing? Now at this time, I don't think that they thought for even a moment that somehow Jesus had the power to, to do what he's about to do. But I do think that they thought, I do, I'm trying really hard to ignore it. Um, I do think that they thought that he could do something, that he would at least care or have some advice for them or have some wisdom for them, right? But in reality, uh, the first thing they decide in their mind is Jesus just must not care about us, right? He must not care. They interpret his slumber as emotional apathy or neglectful leadership. He doesn't care. It's not, the, the problem isn't that they ask Jesus. The problem isn't that they woke Jesus. The problem is how they woke him up. The problem is they woke him up assuming that he didn't care. 
There's usually two reasons that we get mad at Jesus about our circumstances. Usually, uh, there's two reasons we think when we're, we're being faithless. We either assume that he can't do something about it or that he won't do something about it. Either that he's not powerful enough to help us or, or that he just simply isn't good enough to help us. And of course, neither of these things are true. So Jesus does wake up. He does stand up in verse 39. And here's what he does. He awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. I love that. A great calm. So here we're reminded of the identity of Jesus. So he is the man sleeping in the stern, but he is also the God-man. We see his humanity in his, in his nap. We see his divinity when he stands up and tells the wave to silence. Listen to this one commentator said, Jesus addressed his creation as his child. Hush, be still, stay that way. And it responded accordingly. The wind ceased and the waves calmed. This is the same Jesus, second person of the Trinity, who created the cosmos, created the water in the first place. This is the same Jesus who at creation literally formed out of the watery abyss land and continents and division between land and water. This is Colossians chapter 1.15. By him, this is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And creation here recognizes its master. Creation obeys. The, the inferior power of creation is swallowed up by the superior power of Christ, its maker. Isn't that amazing? And how did Jesus do it? He spoke through the power of the word of his mouth. He spoke and creation obeyed. It's amazing. It's amazing. He took the chaos of the ocean and gave it silence. The great calm. Now this, of course, foreshadows something that will come in the future. And that is the moment where Jesus comes again into the great chaos that is being created by moral evil, natural evil, and supernatural evil. And he will speak calm with the sword of his mouth as the power of Christ comes and puts everything back as it's supposed to be. Are you looking forward to that? If you're on the right side of the power, then you are. <laughs> if you're not, it's terrifying. If you're on the right side of the sword of the power of his mouth, then it's good news. Now, Jesus is going to deal with their unbelief. Believe it or not, it was easier for Jesus to deal with the waves than the unbelief of his disciples. The problem, uh, G. Campbell Morgan notes, the problem that confronted God was not that of stilling the storm and the sea, but that of stilling the storm in the human soul. And that is the harder work of God. Getting humans to, to, to calm down and trust him is much harder than telling creation to hush. So Jesus said to them in verse 40, why are you so afraid? What are you afraid of? Have you still no faith? That word still, I think, would have a bit of a cut to it. Guys, really? Really? Still? You still don't get it? You still don't understand? 
You guys have been beholding raw power for, for close to a year now. You've been seeing me do miraculous acts that nobody can conjure, and you still are terrified of water? I made water. Come on, guys. I'm sure he said it much more kindly and much more Jesus-y than that. But it's like me talking to my kids when I have to tell my son for the 5,000th time to put socks on before he puts his shoes on. But still, right, still, dude, come on, what do I got to do here? Now, I want you to see in verse 41, one of the most profound verses, I think, in the whole Bible. And they were filled, the disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These guys are dumbfounded and they're terrified. <laughs> they thought they were scared of the waves. The waves just obeyed this man that they've been following around for the last year. Who is this guy that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? The fear of nature's worst power was swallowed up by the greater fear of Jesus' superior power. And these guys are scratching their heads, unsure what to do with the raw power of Jesus that he yields, the authority that they've just seen over creation. And I would actually say this is probably the most appropriate disposition the disciples have had towards Jesus yet. Because the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is a sense when we look at Jesus as some kind of a squishy savior, who wants to hold our hand, where we're missing a piece of who God truly is. Jesus loves you, but he is powerful. This is pictured well in the uh, Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe when, they, when they're describing Aslan to these young kids and they say, well, is, who is this lion? Is he safe? <laughs> and, and they kind of laugh. Safe? Oh, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. He's not a tame lion, they say. He is a powerful lion. See, Jesus here is to be feared. But at the same time, he stopped the waves because he's good, because he's kind, because he cares for his disciples. He is both good and he is powerful. Both truths are real. I want you to just consider for a moment the original audience of who would be reading Mark's gospel here. It would be Christians in the first century who were being systematically persecuted by the Roman government. And Mark writes this gospel to encourage them that Jesus, the one they're following, has superior power over Rome. It's no surprise that when you look at the ancient artwork that the church is often pictured in a boat tossed by waves and guess who's in the standing in the middle of the boat? Jesus. And it's no, pick, it's no, it's no uh, coincidence that in the book of Revelation in chapter 1, Jesus, when he comes in power and the sword is coming from his mouth, which is the word of God, that he is standing where? In the midst of the church, holding the church in his hand, in the midst of the candlesticks, because he is in the midst of the waves. Maybe we're a little too safe in our culture to get this. Maybe we're a little too safe in our culture for this to be encouraging for us. But maybe as things begin to get harder for Christians, we'll read this and go, I'm so glad that he's in the boat. 
Because true power is not beholden to Rome. True power is Christ's. He owns it all. He has it all. And he is in the midst of his church, guiding us and comforting us through every storm. I'm so thankful for that. So we see Jesus' power over natural evil. Now we're going to see Jesus' power over supernatural evil. Chapter 1, verse 1. I'm not trying to scare any kids in here with this passage, but this is ultimate reality. They need to hear it. Okay? So I'm just going to teach it. Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee. The eastern side was very different than the western side. The western side is where Capernaum and Peter's house and much of the ministry that Jesus did. The eastern side was populated largely by Gentiles and what is referred to as Hellenistic Jews. Jews were, uh, the Hellenistic Jews were those who were influenced by the Greek world. So in many ways, they had sort of, sort of strayed away from following Yahweh in the way that he had actually called them to. They, and then this is really pictured in the fact that they're pig farmers. Okay, the Jews had strict dietary regulations, and one of the ways that you knew if you were one of God's people was that you didn't eat certain kinds of animals, and pigs were the worst. And Gentiles, just like we do today, we love it, right? And we can now because this one thing happened in the New Testament. We can talk about that later. Okay, bring on the bacon. So we're good. But here, at this particular moment, these guys are far from the Lord, they're not following the law. And Jesus retreats to the eastern side of the Galilee, probably to, to find some rest. The Father has something else in mind. Verse 2, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, I mean, his sandals literally just hit the sand, and immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus, has, he, he, he got his nap interrupted, the disciples are disheveled. They got salt water in their hand. They're soaking wet. Their boat is tattered. They're just drained. They just want to break. And as soon as Jesus' sandal hits the sand, there is a man with an unclean spirit right there ready to intercept him. Good grief. Can we just get a nap, right? That's what you're thinking if you're the disciples. Come on. Three, verse 3, he lived among the tombs. And we're going to get a description of this man. He lived among the tombs, that is, he lived with dead bodies. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one, note this, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs, on the mountains, he was always crying out, Cutting himself with stones. Just like the storm, we have power. Power that is beyond the ability of human beings to control. Just like the disciples can't rein in the storm, these men, the garrisons, cannot keep under control a man who has been taken over by supernatural evil. And this is where Jesus comes in. Now, there's some characteristics here that are seemingly common of those who are dealing with demonic oppression. This man lives among the corpses. He lives among the dead. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a problem with that. He keeps breaking chains, so he has some kind of supernatural ability that he's uh, receiving from this demonic oppression. Uh, he's self-destructive, which is common for demonic oppression. He's cutting himself. Why? Because Satan hates the image of God and humans bear it. 
That's why it's such a, it's such a, a dark place to go when you begin wanting to hurt yourself, harm yourself, cut yourself, destroy yourself. Why? Because Satan hates you because you are a picture of God. So this man is being destroyed. He's screaming out for help, for care. You string all of these realities together and you can imagine the disciples watching this guy walk up and they're thinking, please, anybody but this guy. You ever had that moment where you're walking downtown and someone who's out of their mind latches onto you and decides they're going to come heckle you? Maybe I'm the only one. But the first thought you just go is, oh, please. This is what's had This guy's latched on to Jesus' disciples and he's coming to heckle them. The problem is he doesn't realize until he gets there what he's dealing with. And as soon as he gets there, as soon as he beholds Jesus, he sees what the storm saw and that this is not just another man. This is the God-man. This man has the ability to see what the disciples can't. And that is that this Jesus is the son of God, the author of the universe, the authority over all created things. Verse six, when he saw the the demon-possessed man, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? This demon knows exactly who Jesus is. There's no question. He knows exactly who he is. He identifies him. And then he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. It's so interesting that these these demonic uh, oppressors are pleading with Jesus not to torment him. Why are they doing that? Because they know that there is a time coming where God will send his son, and when his son comes, game over. The interesting thing is, the created universe doesn't know when that time is. Isn't that funny? They don't know. So this man who's possessed by all these demons, he looks and he goes, oh, no, it's time. My time's up. And so he's begging Jesus, please do not torment me. Please do not send me away into the abyss. And Jesus asks him, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. Now remember, this isn't the man speaking, right? My name is Legion, for we are many. How creepy is that? We are many. What is a legion? A legion is between four and 6,000 Roman soldiers. How many demons are in this man? We don't know, but it's thousands. In fact, we, we probably do have a good idea because when he casts him out, it's 2,000, okay? This is an army living within this man. And then in verse 10, <clears throat> the demon, the man possessed with the demon says, he begs him earnestly to not send them out of the country. Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? He's like, don't torment me. And he's like, if you're going to send me out, can you not send me out of this place? Why does he want to stay there? Why does he want to stay in that country? Well, I just would suggest to you that I think actually that the demonic has um, particular inroads that they've worked for hundreds and hundreds of years into physical locations, geographical locations. And once they gain foothold in those areas, they don't want to leave. And we open the door for that when we worship the, the wrong kingdom. There is a generational reality to demonic oppression. There's a geographical reality to demonic oppression. And these guys don't want to leave all the work that they've done. They've found a foothold with the Gerasenes. Don't make us leave. Don't make us start over. 
We're just really getting some power here. And so they beg for Jesus not to send them away. By the way, be careful what doors you open. And I'm not just talking about Ouija boards. That too. I'm talking about anything that gives preference or gives authority to the wrong kingdom. Opens a door. And when the door is open, it's easier to burst through it. Be careful what you open. There are dark things in this world that open doors to things that we don't even understand. Verse 11. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. That is so bizarre, isn't it? So he gave them permission. He gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, which means there was probably about 2,000 demons, uh, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Can you imagine watching that? This is is a great teaching for having the kids in here. Uh, It's like a herd of pigs literally just barrel off the cliff, drown themselves in the ocean. What are we supposed to think about that? What are we supposed to do with that? It's the craziest story. One commentator notes, few animals are so individually stubborn as swine, yet they rush simultaneously over the cliff. How much do these swine not want to be inhabited by these spirits that they are willing to literally run off the cliff to avoid it? We don't know exactly why they run. We don't know exactly why they do what they do, but they do. And we don't know why Jesus allowed them to go into the pigs. I'm not going to try to answer that. You can think about it. You can consider it on your own. But here's one thought. Here's one thought. One commentator notes this, and I thought this was interesting. It may be sufficient to answer this, that Christ did not send the devils into the swine. He merely drove them from the man. All beyond this was merely permissive. But supposing that he had done so, a man is of more value than many swine. And if this, is grant, if this granting of the evil spirit's request helped in any way to cure, uh, to cure of this sufferer, caused them to relax their hold on him more easily. Now notice here, it may have been necessary for the permanent healing of the man that he should have this outward evidence and testimony that the hellish powers which held him in bondage had quieted their hold. He may have needed to have this deliverance sealed and realized to him in the open destruction of his enemies, not otherwise to be persuaded that Christ had indeed forever set him free, as Israel coming out of Egypt must see the Egyptians dead upon the seashore before they could indeed believe that the rod of their oppressors had been broken forever." What that is saying is that it may have been a kindness to this man that he could see visibly and remember eternally that his demons had gone over the cliff and they were gone. That Jesus was the superior power. We need to be reminded of the superiority of Jesus over the things that we struggle with. Now verse 14 we see an interesting reaction by the townspeople. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. Now, you can imagine 2,000 pigs just barrel off a cliff. Everybody wants to know what's going on. The herdsmen are upset. They go tell the townspeople. The townspeople come to investigate. In verse 15, the one who had had the legion was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. That is an amazing picture of what happens when you become a Christian. (laughs) 
You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ when you get saved, and you are in your right mind. You are in the mind of Christ being formed in you. What a beautiful thing. And similar to the storm, what's more scary to them is not the demonic oppression, it's the great calm. Because the great calm signals to them that there is a greater power than the power they feared before. This man sitting there clothed in his right mind makes them go, what in the world are we dealing with here with this man? Who could do what we couldn't do? We couldn't even chain this guy down, and now he's healed. And notice the words, and they were afraid. They were afraid, just like the disciples. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demons possessed man and to the pigs. Verse 17, they do an interesting thing. They begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. It's hard to get your head around that, isn't it? These guys have been dealing with this guy. They don't know what to do with him. He's violent. Uh, they try to chain him up. They can't chain him up. They have to run him out of town. He's been a nuisance. He's been a problem in their society. Jesus shows up and fixes the problem. And then they're like, yeah, can you leave? Why? There's a couple of options. It could be because Jesus had a massively adverse effect on their economy. <laughs> Pig farming just plummeted. Everyone's selling their stocks. Yeah, we, we were doing okay. Jesus got here. Now, now, now pigs are plummeting. Okay, could be that. It could be a fear of a similar judgment. If Jesus treated that man like that, uh, and, and we know that we're in rebellion to God, what, and he is a prophet of God, what's he going to do to us? I think more than likely, it is fear of unpredictable and uncontrollable power. It's the same reason that so many people do not bow the knee to Jesus every day. Because once you bow your knee, you are admitting that he has all the power. And if you don't believe that he's good, and if you don't believe that he's kind, you will ask him to leave. These guys don't want to give over the rights. They want the power. And they've just seen a power that they can't control. They've seen a power that they don't understand. And so they ask the power to leave. It's kind of heartbreaking. They choose the pigs over the Lord. Just like the prodigal son did for a moment, right? Chose the pigs over the Lord. Just like Israel did in the wilderness when God said, I'm delivering you into the land. And then they said, no, actually, we'll, we'll just wander around the wilderness for 40 years because we don't believe God, that he can deliver us. Choose the pigs. You know, when you choose to ask Jesus to leave as the savior of your life, you're choosing the pigs. You're choosing the broken fallenness of this world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, and you're choosing to live with the pigs. And that's what these guys do. It's really sad. It's really sad. Verse 18, I love this verse. Then you got the guy who was just set free, Right? And what does he say? He doesn't say, hey, can you leave? He says this, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. This guy's a believer now. He's like, I don't care where you're going. I want to be with you. That's what a believer looks like, by the way. That's what a born-again Christian looks like. I don't care where Jesus wants me to go. I just want to be with him. That's what a follower of Christ is. Get me by his side. It's completely the opposite of the rich young ruler who was like, yeah, I'm not going to follow you if it costs that much. See, this, this man has found the treasure in the field. He's found Jesus. He's found everything he's ever been looking for, the one that set him free, the one that broke his chains, the one that had the power that he needed to be set free. And he's like, can I just follow you, please? That's a disciple. 
A disciple isn't someone who's convinced or coerced into following Jesus. Hey, why don't you just try it out maybe? I mean, that was like every youth group teaching I ever had when I was a kid. Hey, just try it. No. This man is begging Jesus, can I follow you, please? He's a disciple. And Jesus says exactly what you would expect him not to say, and that is, no, you got to stay here. <laughs> can you imagine how this guy is feeling? Really, Jesus? Like, i got to stay here? Are you kidding me? Look at verse 19. He did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and what? Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I love that. I love that. Jesus is like, hey, I love that you want to follow me, but I actually have a job for you. I want you to go testify. Testify what? To the kindness. Notice it says mercy. To the mercy of Christ. Not the power of Christ, the mercy of Christ. Now, this guy doesn't know systematic theology. He hasn't been to an evangelistic training class. He hasn't been to seminary. He just has a testimony. And Jesus is like, go tell everybody your testimony. It's awesome that this man has the privilege to do this. So what do we do with this? Let's step back for a minute, just try to frame all this. What do we do with these two stories of Jesus' power over natural evil and supernatural evil? What are we to think of this? What does Mark want us to do with this? How does this apply to us? Again, Mark is answering the question that the disciples ask on the boat. It's the most important question anyone can ask. If you're not a believer in here, I would encourage you to ask this question yourself. Who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? That's the question Mark's trying to answer. Who is this man? Who is this man? And of course, we know he is God the Son, the Savior of the world, the one who is coming to rule and reign eternally and calling his sheep to his side. There's a lot that ties these two passages together. Uh, I've been trying to tease them out as we go, but just want you to consider them. Um, both scenes have power, and then we have people that can't control the power, and then we have Jesus that comes in and controls the power. Do you notice that? In both of these scenes, um, the reaction to Jesus is the same among every crowd. Fear. <laughs> The disciples are afraid of him. The garrisons are afraid of him. The, de the demons are afraid of him. Everyone's afraid of him. There's a, two sets of contrasting attributes here between Jesus. We see Jesus the God, or we see Jesus the man, Jesus God. We see Jesus' severity, and we see Jesus' kindness. Both of these things contrast. And there's three questions that are asked in this text that I think we need to take note of. The first question is, is I already mentioned it, who is this? The question we should ask, who is this? Who is this Jesus that can do these things? The second question, can I please come with you? That's the question of a believer. That's the question we should be asking. Christ, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, I want to do that. See, Christianity isn't about getting God to tune into what you want to do. It's about tuning into what he's doing. It's saying, I am ready to follow you wherever you want to go. And the question that we should avoid which is, can you please leave? I don't want your lordship. I don't want your power. I don't want your sovereignty. The reality is, the reality is that we serve a Jesus, we serve a savior that is both 
terrific and terrifying enough to worship and kind enough to trust. Isn't that amazing? I said in my introduction that power is terrifying, but only when it's sourced in something that isn't kind or good. Why am I terrified by the thunder when it rolls in? Why are we terrified by nuclear weapons? Because we don't know exactly who could use those. In fact, we go to great lengths. We spend billions of dollars in our national debt to make sure that certain countries don't get nuclear weapons. Why? Because power in the hands of someone that is not good or sovereign or omniscient is a bad thing. But ultimate power, ultimate reality is in the hands of one who is both good and is sovereign. And he's in your boat if you're a follower of Christ. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging? It's so exciting to think that the power that we truly need is ours. And hear this. Hear this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's good news. We're, we're uh, in an interesting moment, I think, as a culture right now. Thank you so much for the pizza. God bless you. Um, yeah, clap for the pizza. Yeah, I mean, seriously, yeah. Um, uh, we're at an interesting moment in our culture, and, and I was just discussing this with my family last night. We're at an interesting moment, and, and I'm noticing it because what we thought never could have happened, happened this year. And I think what we're realizing, what we're kind of freaked out about a little bit as humans is how fragile our society really is. How fragile. I mean, a pandemic just changed the globe. And, 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 and regardless of what you think politically, our government did some things we never thought they would do. I, I mean, it's kind of scary. And we're realizing we don't have as much power as we thought. We don't have as much control as we thought. This world's a little more scary than we thought. This world's a little more fragile than we thought. And what we're feeling is the same thing that the disciples were feeling when they beheld the storm and they realized they couldn't fix it. Or what the garrisons were feeling when they beheld the demon-possessed man and they realized they can't keep this guy chained up. It's the feeling of, uh-oh, I am out of control. I don't have control. And it's kind of scary. But here's what I want to remind you of this morning. It's very simple. Here's what I want to remind you of. Is that the supreme power in the universe has ownership of you if you're a believer. That the supreme power of the universe is both sovereign and providential. Sovereign meaning he has absolute power. Providential means he's deploying it right now. He's in the boat. He's in the midst of what's going on. He has the power to speak. He has the power to work. And none of this is lost on him. There is a superior power right now to coronavirus. There's a superior power to the, the nations right now that are rising up. I mean, we're dealing with the, the growth and expansion of China in such a way that's terrifying. We're like, man, what happens when these guys get too big? What happens when this country does get nuclear weapons? As Christians, we go, hey, let's, let's, not, let's not make the mistake the disciples made where we start yelling at Jesus and saying, hey, are you sleeping? Can I just say? He's not. He's not sleeping. He's good. He's kind. He's in control. He's powerful. He knows what he's doing. We can trust him. He's both good enough that he's willing to save and he's powerful enough that he's able to save. He is supreme enough to worship and he's kind enough to trust. I'm so thankful for Jesus this morning, aren't you? Amen. Let's stand together, guys. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. 
Lord, thank you this morning that we don't need a very specific application. We don't need a, hey, go do this, go do that. We just need to be reminded of your power. We need to be reminded of your goodness, of your kindness, that Jesus, you sailed all the way across to the other side of the lake to deal with a man that nobody else wanted to touch, that you cared about the disciples in the boat, that you cared enough about the garrisons to leave a man there to testify. God, you're so good. You're so kind to us. You're so powerful. And we pray, Lord, in a moment where we start to feel like we have no control, that we would realize that we don't, but you do that you know what you're doing, that we can trust you in the midst of the storm, Father. God, as we break bread together with cheese and pepperoni on it, Lord, I just pray uh, that, Lord, we would have a great time of fellowship and just be able to encourage uh, one another, Lord, as we hang out. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.